0: hi this is elizabeth bailey and you're listening to the citizens podcast from citizens church in birmingham alabama Zephaniah is a small, wonderful book that points us straight to the cross of Christ. But first we need to understand the context of this book. And verse one is jam-packed. Look with me, church. It says the word of the Lord. So the spirit of God is coming on Zephaniah to speak the word of the Lord to the people of Judah. It says he's the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. And all that means is King Hezekiah, who reigned about a hundred years before, is the great grandfather of Zephaniah. So this prophet isn't a prophet who's been out in the wilderness. He's a prophet who's an insider. His great granddad is the last good king of Judah. Everyone would know Zephaniah. He is a part of the royal lineage. He's a big deal. And he's a big deal with a big message to tell everyone. Because after Hezekiah, (sighs) Hezekiah's son Manasseh reigned. And it was a disaster. Hezekiah was a good king that had people follow the Lord, even prayed to God for an extension in life and the Lord gave it to him. Manasseh said, let's worship all the other gods of all the other nations. Let's prioritize it as a nation to be a pagan nation instead of one that worships Yahweh alone. And it led to an utter disaster in the kingdom. The Assyrians came and actually conquered them. Manasseh would be dragged off as a prisoner back to the Assyrian capital, where in his imprisonment, he would convert to worship Yahweh alone, but it would be too late for him to turn back the nation. The next king was Amon, the father of Josiah, who only reigned two years before he was murdered. Imagine kings getting murdered. That's where the state of the nation is. And so now we have Josiah. He's king now, but he got crowned at eight years old. And it's going to be a while to eventually he becomes a good king who turns the heart of Israel back to their God. And so Zephaniah is prophesying before Josiah grows up and becomes that king. And this is the word that Zephaniah has for us. His prophecy is that God's judgment is coming because God has no rivals. Look at verse 2 with me. This is the first part of the judgment. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds and heavens and fish of the sea and rubble, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. God tells the people, if you will not worship me alone as your creator, then I will literally undo creation. If you hear the echo of Genesis 1, you're hearing it right. The layers of God created this on this day and this on this day and this on this day. God says, I'm going to pull it apart piece by piece to rip your existence and reality asunder because if you won't worship me, no one deserves to live. It don't get bigger, verse two, in a prophecy than that. God is infuriated by our complicity, our agreement with his so-called rivals. And God lays out six ways he detests how Judah is acting. Six ways he can't stand. Six ways they have sought other gods. So let me break it down with you. Look at verse four. It says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah That's that nation of Israel that's left and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the capital, I will cut off from this place, the remnant of Baal. That's the first one. The name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Baal was a super popular pagan God in the area. He was a Canaanite God who was over the weather, over thunder, over lightning, and therefore over the crops, fertility, and success. Who doesn't want to worship basically the money God in a farming society? And he says, I hate this about you and will judge you. Those who bow down on roofs to the host of the heavens, those who worship stars, this is ancient astrology practices, God brings judgment for that too. Number three, he says, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom." We're not sure what Milcom is. It either means swear by your king, mean they're worshiping a human king like Josiah, or Milcom is a deity of the Ammonites. Either way, they're choosing not the Lord. It continues, verse six, those who've turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord, do not inquire of him. I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in four entire. Offense number four, all the kings and their officials are dressing like the other nations. Instead of trying to be a special nation that God has made to worship him, they're trying to dress up and act like the pagan pagan kings and pagan officials to impress them. He's saying, instead of you loving me and being about my ways, you've taken the customs of other nations, nations that don't worship me. Offense number five is this. And on that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Super weird. But what it references is in the book of Samuel, we learn the God Dagon, who's the war God of the Philistines, all of the people who worship him as priests would jump over the threshold in the temple. So we see these people are worshiping literally every God they can get their hands on in the entire surrounding area. And God's saying, enough, I will tear the world down before I let this keep going. The sixth reason, and those who fill their master's house, God's house, God's temple with violence and fraud, probably allusion to that king they murdered not too long ago. Probably an allusion to using the money of the temple for things that they shouldn't. So the six rather than a pagan God speaks to the human heart of disobeying the key laws of God, refusing to honor God and murdering one's brother. God lays all these offenses before them and says, Judah, you cannot worship God alongside these pagan gods. They were blending them all together. And this is something God will simply not tolerate, the worship of false gods. Why? Because it robs God of glory. Two, because those are not gods. They are demonic parts of this universe. And three, because it directly violates God's law. Remember the 10 commandments with me, church. This is from Exodus 20. God redeems Israel, brings them out of slavery, conquers Pharaoh at the Red Sea, brings them to the promised land. And God gives them, here are my 10 words, my 10 rules, my 10 laws to keep you in relationship with me. And let's just look at laws one and two. Here's the reason that God is legitimately very angry. This is from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He very clearly says, I'm the only thing that redeemed you from death and bondage, both spiritually and physically. God is the God of Israel. And here's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, they're breaking that one pretty clearly. They got about every other God before God. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Very clearly, the the words in Zephaniah, using this language of worship, using this language of bow down, they are literally filling the temple. If we walked into the temple of God back then, we would have thought, whoa, this place was supposed to be empty except for all the God-ordained things, and this thing is free full of pagan deities, full of different statues, full of poles, full of different trees, full of paintings, worshiping every single God they could get their hands on. And God hates it. And he says, why? Because I'm a jealous God and I'm the only God for you. I love you with a heat of a billion suns and it will destroy if you refuse to bow down to the true God. But this second law comes with a promise, a curse and a promise. It says, I'm a jealous God punishing the children for sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandments. God had brought them out of slavery to reject every God of every nation. That was rule one, that was rule two. And Zephaniah here isn't bringing a new law to the people, isn't bringing something up they've never heard about. In fact, he is reiterating what was just law one and two. This is what it means to follow a jealous God who will have no rivals. And God has had enough. Zephaniah is telling them the clear truth that God will punish Sin. And in fact, one day Josiah will listen. He will bring reform. But as soon as Josiah dies, the city, Judah, and Jerusalem will go right back to their ways. And this judgment will come. It will come in the form of the Babylonians, who will be much more ruthless than the Assyrians. They'll decimate Jerusalem, burn it to the ground, they'll burn the countryside, they'll slaughter literally thousands. And then they'll drag all the skilled people off all the way back to modern day Iraq and put them to work. That was their practice. It's called the Babylonian captivity. They will send all of what remained in Israel into exile for about 70 years. And in a culture where you have kids at about 20 or maybe younger, that's about three or four generations of humans. God will literally fulfill his Exodus 20 punishment on Israel as promised in this text. But As we hold that in the truthfulness of what happens in the story, we also need to hold in our mind as this prophecy goes on, how can God punish those who don't seek him for three to four generations? Yet God's heart is also to bless, love, and be with his people who seek him for thousands of generations. Seventy years versus literally seven million years of blessing. How can those two things be true? And Zephaniah is not finished teaching us. God cannot be contained be tamed by our complacency. Look at verses twelve and thirteen. The Lord says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or nor will he do ill. Their goods will be plundered. Their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The people who worshiped other gods had a complacent view of God. They believed God won't do good. God won't do bad. God doesn't really care how I live. God doesn't really care about his holiness. God doesn't care about his laws. God doesn't really care about his worship. He won't do anything about it. And so we might as well turn to all these so-called gods of all the pagan nations and just hedge our bets we'll just bet on all of them. If we worship every sort of God, then maybe one of them will bless us and fill our bellies and and make us successful and make the crop come in next year and make me have some kids and help me find my wife and help me build the city. So that's what the people did. Their complacent view of God led them to worship all these other gods. And the same complacent pragmatism is still very alive today. It's the heart of what it means to be a cultural or kind of Southern Christian that says, man, I'm just going to do whatever seems right to me because God doesn't really care. Man, I'm, I'm just going to treat my life however I want to because I really don't think God cares. And it has a thousand words, thousand forms. And it feels like this. God doesn't care what I do with my body. God doesn't care what, care about what I do with my money. God doesn't care what I daydream about. God doesn't care about my commitments to others. God doesn't care if I join a church or serve others or study the word of God. God doesn't really care about justice and mercy for others. I'll do that another day. God doesn't really care about my calendar. God doesn't really care about my priorities. And the truth is, for even a casual reader of the Bible, is that God does care. There's no way to read this Bible and go, yeah, he doesn't care about anything. No, God cares about everything. It's the exact opposite. There's no way you can even read the Bible and take the position that God doesn't care about you and your life. Instead, it's the very opposite. See, a complacent Christianity, complacent faith for them is ignoring the reality of the God of the Bible altogether because there's no room for that view with even a casual reading of even one gospel. If you are someone who's seeking and wondering, do I want to follow Jesus? Read the gospel of John and say, does this God care about my life? And I think you'll be shocked to discover how much he cares for his people. Verse 13 says, you care about the things of earth. When we lose a heart to care about the things of God, we just get busy shopping. We just get busy building a house. We just get busy planting a vineyard. And God's saying, I'm going to lay you to waste in the midst of all your stuff. I lived in a neighborhood next to a neighborhood that was abandoned. There's tons of houses that caught on fire. Things are crazy. Packs of dogs are around. And it just was so eerie and scary that it felt like the apocalypse was about a mile and a half away. And to walk around with my friends then, we thought it was cool. But looking back, there's something so desolate to go. These homes were meant to be lived in and no one lives here. All their stories have evaporated. Whatever ruin came upon them has come. God is saying it'll be like that for those who are complacent, who refuse to seek the Lord. And the judgment continues. Look at verse 14 through 18. It says, The great day of the Lord is near. This is how he describes what that day will be like near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day. The day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against every lofty battlement. Everything that man trusts is going to be laid waste. Every great city, every every big fortified battlement, everything they did to keep themselves from war, to try to be safe. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. It will be like the walking dead because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. Neither their silver or their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. The things we fight and value and kill and steal over won't save a person. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And this includes a specific triumph over any so-called God. Look at 2.11 with me. It says, woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of Catharites. The word of the Lord is against you, O canon, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until you have no ha- inhabitant left. And verse 11 says this, The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish, he will starve to death all the gods of the earth. To him shall bow down each in his place all the lands of the nations. God will specifically make every demon die in hunger and bow down in the end. God will leave nothing to chance because God has no rivals and God will one day crush every person, thing, place in God that competes for his glory. And that is a promise that God intends to keep. Yet God does punish for three or four generations this people, but God also longs to love and bless. And we see this dramatic turn from Zephaniah 1 and 2 to Zephaniah 3, that God's salvation comes from God alone. And there's hints throughout the book. It can't even get through chapter one and chapter two without these hints. That the judgment, there's a hopelessness before the judgment, but then there's a hope in God. Look at verse 2, 3. Salvation is found by sheltering in God alone. Zephaniah's advice is this, to all the people under judgment, coming right to us, seek the Lord all you humble of the land. Everyone who's listening, seek the Lord. All who are humble and see their need for God, seek the Lord who do his commands. Seek his righteousness. Seek his humility. Perhaps you may be hidden, and some translate sheltered, on the day of the anger of the Lord. The judgment of God we just talked about, you could think about like a hundred mile high tsunami coming to crash across the entire earth. There's no escaping it. And then Zephaniah gives the advice, turn into the tsunami. Run towards it. Run towards this fierce Lord. Run towards him with humility. Run towards him with need. Seek him with all your heart. And it is the Lord himself that will shelter you. The Lord himself is your only hope. There is no hope in silver and gold. There is no hope in battlements. There is no hope in a city. There is no hope in anything but the Lord. So run to him, seek him, attack, go as fast as you can to the Lord saying, I need you. And you hear this, that the Lord will shelter you if you seek, if you're humble, if you obey, if you seek his righteousness. This is the language of following Jesus. Jesus will say almost the exact word for word thing. In fact, if you're here for the simplicity sermon, it's literally quoting this. It's Matthew 33. Look at this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God is saying, turn from your ways and run at me. Don't run in fear of my judgment, but run and trust that I love all who seek me. That judgment is for those who refuse to seek. Mercy awaits to the thousands of generations of power for those who will seek the Lord. The only hope you have before the judgment of God for our sin is God. There is no other hope look with me at the wonder of this salvation. Because Zephaniah 3 starts to say, "What salvation mean? It's not just a ticket to heaven, but it's an undoing of all the wrong things in this world. It's a salvation from judgment, but it's more. It's a new life, a new life between God and man. And this is what it looks like. Look at verses 3, 9 through 13. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples, the pure speech of all of them that may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. He's gonna take our worship of other gods out of our mouth. Give us a pure heart with pure speech. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, rivers of Cush was like the far boundary. He's saying, I'm gonna bring in all the people from all the nations, people these people had never even met. I'm gonna bring them to me. The daughter of all my dispersed ones shall be my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. Our shame will go away because the deeds which you have done, you have rebelled against me. For then I'll remove from your midst all the proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. All the prideful will be gone. All the humble will live, but I'll leave you in your midst. a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. When you start to seek and follow God, you become humble and lowly in heart. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, that's how Jesus describes his own heart. He references this very verse and says, if you want to know what I'm like, I'm humble and lowly. He says, that's what you'll be too if you follow me. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel... They shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Injustice will end. All the injustice of this world will come to an end with God because God will judge absolutely everything. No one shall escape the judgment of the Lord except by seeking the Lord himself. No more lies, nor shall be found in their, light, in their mouth any deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid of people with no shepherd. So finally have a shepherd to bring them all the way home. And you must ask, how can this be? How can our sins deserve such judgment? Yet God gives those who seek him such Blessing. And the answer is this, that salvation comes only from Jesus who takes away our judgment. Instead of me ripping to the New Testament, I want to teach it just right here. The answers are right here. This is 600 years before the birth of Christ. And look how specific Zephaniah gets that this is what salvation is. Who will make this happen? Who will be our salvation? Look with me at verse 15. The Lord, who has taken away the judgments against you, he has cleared away your enemies. Who will take away our judgments? The Lord, the judge himself, the one who can undo creation. The Lord. And who is this Lord? Well, he's a man, the king of Israel, and he's also the Lord. God Himself. When it says Lord, this is talking about Yahweh, the special name for God, that the King of Israel one day will also be God Himself. Talking about God and man, 600 years before the birth of Jesus, saying the only one who will save you from the tsunami of God's judgment that will crush everyone and turn us to dust is the King of Israel, the Lord Himself is in your midst. This is God, Emmanuel. That's what the angels called Jesus. He says, God in your midst, God with you. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak: why? The Lord your God is in your midst. The God will visit his people, a mighty one, a mighty person, who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness; he will quiet you by his love; he will exult over you with loud singing. And I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. All those who mourn, all those who weep will be held close by this God who came to our midst, who is both the King of Israel and the Lord God himself. And we see this come together on the cross of Christ where that undoing of the world, ripping apart wrath and judgment against sin gets poured out not on people, but on one person. Jesus, who knew no sin, but became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. When you see a cross, it reminds us that the king of Israel, the true king, the one who's much better than any Hezekiah, that king died for us like a common criminal, was slaughtered, hung high, brought low, crowd loud, covered in blood, likely naked, bearing the shame so that we don't have shame anymore died and then rose again as the conquering king so that he could tuck us into himself under his love. If you've ever raised chickens, the mother hen will take the little chicks and literally place them under wings and then walk around with them. That's the imagery used throughout the Psalms and used here that God wants you in such an intimate, loving relationship with him that you're so close, your feet aren't even touching the ground that you're pulled in close against all the things of life. That's the promise that the judgment of God, you will escape by seeking the Lord and by seeking his salvation in the son of God, Jesus Christ himself. Here's why Zephaniah is relevant to us because like most of the prophecies of the Old Testament, they're prophesying to the people that Babylonian exile happens and God's faithful to bring them on back after 70 years. But it's also prophesying about Jesus to come and Jesus's return. That judgment is still real for anyone who does not seek the Lord. That judgment is coming. God will rip the world apart before he makes it anew. That is very real. But for all who seek the Lord, that judgment is gone. It was poured out on the cross on the Lord, who is the true King of Israel. And that's where we see this, that Jesus is both our savior described in Zephaniah 3, but Jesus is also the world's final judge in Zephaniah 1 and 2. Acts 17, 30 and 31 explains this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, talking about sin, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, even us right here today. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed, he has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When God raises Jesus from the dead, it should be a cheer of hope for all who seek God that this man conquered sin and death and the devil. But if you choose not to seek the Lord, it should be a groan to know that this man indeed will judge the earth, that Jesus is both the savior and the final hammer of God. It's not Old Testament, bad, mean God, New Testament, happy, good Jesus. Same God the whole time. And Jesus has salvation in one hand and the keys to death and Hades and to others as Revelation 1 describes him. Seek the Lord. If you think Zephaniah, this can't be real, man, just read the Gospel of Matthew. The harshest words of any prophet come from the great prophet Jesus himself. He will say all this and more just in the gospel of Matthew. So I urge you to three things, church. First, shelter under Jesus from the judgment to come. Do not be foolish and delay. Surely it will come just as the exile came to Judah. Those folks said, there's no way God would take away Jerusalem. There's no way we'll ever get conquered. And they were conquered. As surely as that happened, historically it happened. Archaeology, it happened. Surely the judgment will come. So shelter under Jesus and believe. Number two, family, if you follow Jesus, sing like you're saved. Our salvation results in God's singing and ours. Look at 3.14. We skipped it earlier, but it's too good. He tells all the people who seek the Lord, Sing aloud, O oh, daughter of Zion. Shout, O oh, Israel. You don't have to be good at singing. Houston already confessed. He is loud. He's proud. He's giving his all. I love it. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O oh, daughter of Jerusalem. I know me and Charlie talk about worship almost every Sunday, but I am telling you, we're talking about it because God's about it, and God's people have been singing literally for 10,000 years, and you join that when you worship every Sunday to say, yeah, I'm one of the people who worships Yahweh, not Dagon. I don't worship Millikon. I'm not worshiping the stars. I'm not worshiping Moloch. I'm not worshiping any of these things. I worship Yahweh, Jesus with a loud voice. And then three, spread the good news of the gospel, including the bad news that God has promised he will gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we should just go ahead and share our faith because God is saying people will believe this message, but don't skip the judgment. The cross is only as good as knowing why there's a cross. There's a judgment coming and a judgment that fell on Jesus. Shelter on that Jesus who took a judgment for you and share it with all you know. There's an urgency. There's a suddenness. We don't know when the end of the world will be here. Could be in the parking lot. It could be in a thousand years. The Lord says, don't worry about that part. Be ready all the time. Just share this with urgency. Don't give up. Even if you've shared with a family member, even if it's a lost cause, there are no lost causes with a God who finds people all the time. Church, let's sing because it tells us that God sings over us once we seek him. When we are safe and saved in God's arms, it says he sings over us. He rejoices over us. When's the last time you sat and meditated that the God who made the world is singing over you right now? It's singing over Hope, singing over Shayla, singing over Dakota, singing over Clay, singing over BJ, singing over Daniel, right now and rejoicing. Why? Because when he sees you, he doesn't see all of your bad. He sees the goodness of Christ. A member of his own family. So we rejoice back and we sing with all of our heart. You've been listening to the Citizens Church podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.